Chapters 1 through 3 of Dr. Ox's Experiment. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Dr. Ox's Experiment by Jules Verne. Chapter 1. How it is useless to seek, even on the best maps, for the small town of Kikendon. If you try to find, on any map of Flanders, ancient or modern, the small town of Kikendone, probably you will not succeed. Is Kikendone, then, one of those towns which have disappeared? No. A town of the future? By no means. It exists in spite of geographies, and has done so for some eight or nine hundred years. It even numbers 2,393 souls, allowing one soul to each inhabitant. It is situated thirteen and a half kilometers northwest of Unnard, and fifteen and a quarter kilometers southeast of Bruges, in the heart of Flanders. The Var, a small tributary of the Scheldt, passes beneath its three bridges, which are still covered with a quaint medieval roof, like that at Tournay. An old chateau is to be seen there, the first stone of which was laid so long ago as 1197 by Count Baldwin, afterwards Emperor of Constantinople, and there is a town hall, with Gothic windows, crowned by a chaplet of battlements, and surrounded by a turreted belfry, which rises three hundred and fifty-seven feet above the soil. Every hour you may hear there a chime of five octaves, a veritable aerial piano, the renown of which surpasses that of the famous chimes of Bruges. Strangers, if any ever come to Kikendone, do not quit the curious old town until they have visited its Stadtholder's Hall, adorned by a full-length portrait of William of Nassau by Brandon. The loft of the Church of St. Magloire, a masterpiece of 16th-century architecture, the cast-iron well in the spacious Place saint Ernuf, the admirable ornamentation of which is attributed to the artist-blacksmith Quentin Metzis, the tomb formerly erected to Mary of Burgundy, daughter of Charles the Bold, who now reposes in the church of Notre-Dame at Bruges, and so on. The principal industry of Kikendone is the manufacture of whipped creams and barley sugar on a large scale. It has been governed by the Van Tricasses, from father to son, for several centuries. And yet, Kikendone is not on the map of Flanders. Have the geographers forgotten it, or is it an intentional omission? That I cannot tell but Quiquendone really exists, with its narrow streets, its fortified walls, its Spanish-looking houses, its market, and its burgomaster, so much so that it has recently been the theater of some surprising phenomena, as extraordinary and incredible as they are true, which are to be recounted in the present narration. Surely there is nothing to be said or thought against the Flemings of western Flanders. They are a well-to-do folk, wise, prudent, sociable, with even tempers, hospitable, perhaps a little heavy in conversation, as in mind, but this does not explain why one of the most interesting towns of their district has yet to appear on modern maps. The omission is certainly to be regretted. If only history, or in default of history the chronicles, or in default of chronicles the traditions of the country, made mention of Quiquendone. But no, neither atlases, guides, nor itineraries speak of it. Monsieur Joan himself, that energetic hunter after small towns, says not a word of it. 
it might be readily conceived that this silence would injure the commerce, the industries of the town, but let us hasten that Quiquendone has neither industry nor commerce, and that it does very well without them. Its barley sugar and whipped cream are consumed on the spot, none is exported. In short, the Quiquendonians have no need of anybody. Their desires are limited, their existence is a modest one, they are calm, moderate, phlegmatic, in a word, they are Flemings, such as are still to be met with sometimes between the Scheldt and the North Sea. Chapter 2, in which the Burgomaster Van Tricas and the Councillor Nicholas consult about the affairs of the town. You think so? asked the Burgomaster. I think so, replied the Councillor, after some minutes of silence. You see, we must not act hastily, resumed the Burgomaster. We have been talking over this grave matter for ten years, replied the Councillor Nicholas, and I confess to you, my worthy Van Tricas, that I cannot yet take it upon myself to come to a decision. I quite understand your hesitation, said the Burgomaster, who did not speak until after a good quarter of an hour of reflection. I quite understand it, and I fully share it. We shall do wisely to decide upon nothing without a more careful examination of the question. It is certain, replied Nicholas, that this post of civil commissary is useless in so peaceful a town as Quiquendone. Our predecessor, said Van Tricas gravely, our predecessor never said, never would have dared to say, that anything is certain. Every affirmation is subject to awkward qualifications. The counselor nodded his head slowly in token of assent. Then he remained silent for nearly half an hour. After this lapse of time, during which neither the counselor nor the burgomaster moved so much as a finger, Nicholas asked Van Tricas whether his predecessor, of some twenty years before, had not thought of suppressing this office of civil commissary, which each year cost the town of Quiquendone the sum of thirteen hundred and seventy-five francs and some centimes. I believe he did, replied the burgomaster, carrying his hand with majestic deliberation to his ample brow. But the worthy man died without having dared to make up his mind, either as to this or any other administrative gesture. He was a sage, why should I not do as he did? Councillor Nicholas was incapable of originating any objection to the burgomaster's opinion. The man who dies, added Von Tricas solemnly, without ever having decided upon anything during his life, has very nearly attained to perfection. This said, the burgomaster pressed a bell with the end of his little finger, which gave forth a muffled sound, which seemed less a sound than a sigh. Presently, some light steps glided softly across the tile floor. A mouse would not have made less noise running over a thick carpet. The door of the room opened, turning on its well-oiled hinges. A young girl with long blonde tresses made her appearance. It was Suzel van Tricas, the burgomaster's only daughter. She handed her father a pipe, filled to the brim, and a small copper brazier, spoke not a word, and disappeared at once making no more noise at her exit than at her entrance. The worthy burgomaster lighted his pipe, and was soon hidden in a cloud of bluish smoke, 
leaving Counselor Nicholas plunged in the most absorbing thought. The room in which these two notable personages, charged with the government of Quiquendone, were talking, was a parlor richly adorned with carvings in dark wood, a lofty fireplace in which an oak might have been burned or an ox roasted, occupied the whole of one of the sides of the room. Opposite to it was a trellised window, the painted glass of which toned down the brightness of the sunbeams. In an antique frame, above the chimney-piece, appeared the portrait of some worthy man, attributed to Memling, which no doubt represented an ancestor of the Van Tricasses, whose authentic genealogy dates back to the fourteenth century, the period when the Flemings and Guy de Dampierre were engaged in wars with the Emperor Rudolf of Habsburg. The parlor was the principal apartment of the Burgomaster's house, which was one of the pleasantest in Quiquendone. Built in the Flemish style, with all the abruptness, quaintness, and picturesqueness of pointed architecture, it was considered one of the most curious monuments of the town. A Carthusian convent, or a deaf and dumb asylum, was not more silent than this mansion. Noise had no existence there. People did not walk, but glided about in it. They did not speak, they murmured. There was not, however, any lack of women in the house, which, in addition to the burgomaster Van Tricasse himself, sheltered his wife, Madame Bridget Van Tricasse, his daughter, Suzel Van Tricasse, and his domestic, Lachki Janshu. We may also mention the burgomaster's sister, Aunt Hermance, an elderly maiden who still bore the nickname of Tantenmans, which her niece Suzel had given her when a child. But in spite of all these elements of discord and noise, the burgomaster's house was as calm as a desert. The burgomaster was some fifty years old, neither fat nor lean, neither short nor tall, neither rubicund nor pale, neither gay nor sad, neither contented nor discontented, neither energetic nor dull, neither proud nor humble, neither good nor bad, neither generous nor miserly, neither contagious nor cowardly, neither too much nor too little of anything, a man notably moderate in all respects, whose invariable slowness of motion, slight hanging lower jaw, prominent eyebrows, massive forehead, smooth as a copper plate and without a wrinkle, would at once have betrayed to a physiognomist that the burgomaster von Tricasse was phlegm personified. Never, either from anger or passion, had any emotion whatever hastened the beating of this man's heart, or flushed his face. Never had his pupils contracted under the influence of any irritation, however ephemeral. He invariably wore good clothes, neither too large nor too small, which he never seemed to wear out. He was shod with large square shoes, with triple soles and silver buckles, which lasted so long that his shoemaker was in despair. Upon his head he wore a large hat which dated from the period when Flanders was separated from Holland, so that this venerable masterpiece was at least forty years old. But what would you have? It is the passions which wear out body as well as soul, the clothes as well as the body, and our worthy burgomaster, apathetic, indolent, indifferent, was passionate in nothing. He wore nothing out, not even himself, and he considered himself the very man to administer the affairs of Quiquendone and its tranquil population. The town, indeed, was not less calm than the Van Tricasse mansion. It was in this peaceful dwelling 
that the burgomaster reckoned on attaining the utmost limit of human existence, after having, however, seen the good Madame Bridget van Tricasse, his wife, precede him to the tomb, where surely she would not find a more profound repose than she had enjoyed on earth for sixty years. This demands explanation. The van Tricasse family might well call itself the Genot family. This is why. Everyone knows that the knife of this typical personage is as celebrated as its proprietor, and not less incapable of wearing out, thanks to the double operation, incessantly repeated, of replacing the handle when it is worn out, and the blade when it becomes worthless. A precisely similar operation had been going on from time immemorial in the Van Tricasse family, to which nature had lent herself with more than usual complacency. From 1340, it had invariably happened that a Van Tricasse, when left a widower, had remarried a Van Tricasse younger than himself, who, becoming in turn a widow, had married again a Van Tricasse younger than herself, and so on, without a break in the continuity from generation to generation. Each died in his or her turn with mechanical regularity. Thus the worthy Madame Bridget Van Tricasse had now her second husband, and unless she violated her every duty, would precede her spouse, he being ten years younger than herself, to the other world, to make room for a new Madame Van Tricasse. Upon this, the burgomaster calmly counted that the family tradition might not be broken. Such was this mansion, peaceful and silent, of which the doors never creaked, the windows never rattled, the floors never groaned, the chimneys never roared, the weathercocks never grated, the furniture never squeaked, the locks never clanked, and the occupants never made more noise than their shadows. The god Harpocrates would certainly have chosen it for the temple of silence. Chapter 3, in which the commissary Passouf enters as noisily as unexpectedly. When the interesting conversation which has been narrated began, it was a quarter before three in the afternoon. It was at a quarter before four that Van Tricasse lighted his enormous pipe, which could hold a quart of tobacco, and it was at thirty-five minutes past five that he finished smoking it. All this time, the two comrades did not exchange a single word. About six o'clock, the counselor, who had a habit of speaking in a very summary manner, resumed in these words. So we decide... To decide nothing, replied the burgomaster. I think, on the whole, that you are right, Van Tricasse. I think so, too, Nicholas. We will take steps with reference to the civil commissary when we have more light on the subject, later on. There is no need for a month yet. Not even for a year, replied Nicholas, unfolding his pocket handkerchief and calmly applying it to his nose. There was another silence of nearly a quarter of an hour. Nothing disturbed this repeated pause in the conversation, not even the appearance of the house-dog Linto, who, not less phlegmatic than his master, came to pay his respects in the parlor. Noble dog, a model for his race, had he been made of pasteboard with wheels on his paws, he would not have made less noise during his stay. Toward eight o'clock, after Lotchke had brought the antique lamp of polished glass, the burgomaster said to the counselor, "'We have no other urgent matter to consider?' "'No, Von Tricasse, none that I know of.' "'Have I not been told, though?' asked the burgomaster. 
that the tower of the Oudenard Gate is likely to tumble down? Ah, replied the counselor. Really, I should not be astonished if it fell on some passerby any day. Oh, before such a misfortune happens, I hope we shall have come to a decision on the subject of this tower. I hope so, von Fricasse. There are more pressing matters to decide. No doubt. The question of the leather market, for instance. What? Is it still burning? Still burning, and has been for the last three weeks. Have we not decided, did counsel, to let it burn? Yes, von Tricasse, on your motion. Was not that the surest and simplest way to deal with it? Without doubt. Well, let us wait. Is that all? All, replied the counselor, scratching his head, as if to assure himself that he had not forgotten anything important. Ah, exclaimed the burgomaster, haven't you also heard something of an escape of water which threatens to inundate the low quarter of Saint-Jacques? I have. It is indeed unfortunate that this escape of water did not happen above the leather market. It would naturally have checked the fire, and would thus have saved us a good deal of discussion. What can you expect, Nicholas? There is nothing so illogical as accidents. They are bound by no rules, and we cannot profit by one, as we might wish, to remedy another. It took von Tricasse's companion some time to digest this fine observation. "'Well, but,' resumed the counselor Nicholas, after the lapse of some moments, "'we have not spoken of our great affair.' "'What great affair? Have we, then, a great affair?' asked the burgomaster. "'No doubt. About lighting the town.' "'Oh, yes. If my memory serves me, you are referring to the lighting plan of Dr. Ox. Precisely. It is going on, Nicholas, replied the burgomaster. They are already laying the pipes, and the works are entirely completed. Perhaps we have hurried a little in this matter, said the counselor, shaking his head. Perhaps, but our excuse is that Dr. Ox bears the whole expense of his experiment. It will not cost us a sou. That, true enough, is our excuse. Moreover, we must advance with the age. If the experiment succeeds, Quiquendone will be the first town in Flanders to be lighted with the oxy... What is the gas called? Oxyhydric gas. Well, oxyhydric gas, then. At this moment the door opened, and Lachki came in to tell the burgomaster that his supper was ready. Councillor Nicholas rose to take leave of Antricas, whose appetite had been stimulated by so many affairs discussed and decisions taken, and it was agreed that the Council of Notables should be convened after a reasonably long delay to determine whether a decision should be provisionally arrived at with reference to the really urgent matter of the Oudenard Gate. The two worthy administrators then directed their steps towards the street door, the one conducting the other. The counselor, having reached the last step, lighted a little lantern to guide him through the obscure streets of Quiquendone, which Dr. Ox had not yet lighted. It was a dark October night, and a light fog overshadowed the town. Nicholas's preparations for departure consumed at least a quarter of an hour, for having lighted his lantern, he had to put on his big cowskin socks and his sheepskin gloves. Then he put up the furred collar of his overcoat, 
turned the brim of his felt hat down over his eyes, grasped his heavy crow-beaked umbrella, and got ready to start. When Lachki, however, who was lighting her master, was about to draw the bars of the door, an unexpected noise arose outside. Yes, strange as the thing seems, a noise, a real noise, such as the town had certainly not heard since the taking of the dungeon by the Spaniards in 1513, terrible noise, awoke the long dormant echoes of the venerable von Tricasse mansion. Someone knocked heavily upon this door, hitherto virgin to brutal touch. Redoubled knocks were given with some blunt implement, probably a knotty stick, wielded by a vigorous arm. With the strokes were mingled cries and calls. These words were distinctly heard. Monsieur Van Tricasse, Monsieur the Burgomaster, open, open quickly! The Burgomaster and the Counselor, absolutely astonished, looked at each other speechless. This passed their comprehension. If the old culverin of the chateau, which had not been used since 1385, had been let off in the parlor, the dwellers in the Van Tricasse mansion would not have been more dumbfounded. Meanwhile, the blows and cries were redoubled. Lachki, recovering her coolness, had plucked up courage to speak. Who is there? It is I, I, I. Who are you? The commissary Passouf. The commissary Passouf, the very man whose office it had been contemplated to suppress for ten years. What had happened then? Could the Burgundians have invaded Quiquendone as they did in the fourteenth century? No event of less importance could have so moved commissary Passouf who in no degree yielded the palm to the burgomaster himself for calmness and phlegm. On a sign from Van Tricasse, for the worthy man would not have articulated a syllable, the bar was pushed back and the door opened. Commissary Passu flung himself into the antechamber. One would have thought there was a hurricane. "'What's the matter, monsieur the commissary?' asked Lachki, a brave woman who did not lose her head under the most trying circumstances." "'What's the matter?' replied Passouf, whose big round eyes expressed a genuine agitation. "'The matter is that I have just come from Dr. Ox's, who has been holding a reception, and that there—' "'There?' "'There I have witnessed such an altercation as—' "'Monsieur the Burgomaster, they have been talking politics!' "'Politics?' repeated Van Tricasse, running his fingers through his wig. "'Politics!' resumed Commissary Passouf, which has not been done for perhaps a hundred years at Quiquendone. Then the discussion got warm, and the advocate, André Schut, and the doctor, Dominique Custos, became so violent that it may be they will call each other out. "'Call each other out?' cried the counselor. "'A duel? A duel at Quiquendone? And what did Advocate Schut and Dr. Gustos say?' "'Just this.' Monsieur Advocate, said the doctor to his adversary, you go too far. It seems to me, and you do not take sufficient care to control your words. The Burgomaster Van Tricasse clasped his hands. The counselor turned pale and let his lantern fall. The commissary shook his head. That a phrase so evidently irritating should be pronounced by two of the principal men in the country. This Dr. Custos, muttered Van Tricasse, is decidedly a dangerous man, a harebrained fellow. Come, gentlemen. On this, Councillor Nicholas and the commissary 
accompanied the burgomaster into the parlor. End of chapter 3 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com